Good afternoon. Good to see you all. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have a short time of confession. Um, do we have the PowerPoint up? You don't. Who's going to confess to eating more junk food than they know is good for them? A few people. Who's going to uh, confess to having more screen time than is recommended? Uh, and just to be clear, the recommended amount is about two hours per day. Yeah, maybe a few more hands go up. Who's going to confess to procrastinating, putting off your study, your chores, and your work? A few of you. Okay. Well, if we're honest, I think we all have times when we do the opposite of what we know is the right thing or the best thing. And not because we don't know any better, but because we want to. <laughs> we let our circumstances or our emotions or our desires override our thinking or our knowledge. And I remember uh, somebody sharing an illustration that really helped me understand how this works. Someone riding an elephant. Do we have anyone has ever had a ride on an elephant? A few people, great. The rest of you will just have to imagine. Imagine you sat on a fully grown elephant. Uh, to give you some sense, that an elephant would weigh more than all of us combined. It would have uh, more strength than all of our combined strength. But you're told you can sit on it and ride it and control it. Uh, if it's a trained elephant. It's been trained with some commands. But it probably seems a bit ridiculous that a person could sit on a creature that's so powerful and control it. But usually a trained elephant will follow commands uh, and go where the rider says. But what if the elephant decides it wants to go in a different direction? You want to go left, the elephant wants to go right. Uh, who do you think is going to win? Who do you think is going to win? Uh, and the illustration there is actually, that's a bit like our intellect, our rational self versus our emotional self. The rider is like the rational self, the one that has the knowledge, the understanding, and normally, when we make decisions, we, we use that to guide us. But our, the elephant represents our emotions, and there are times when the powerful emotions override what we know is good and right. When we want something different to what our mind is telling us, so you've already had two chocolate bars, and there's another one there that you really want, the elephant wins. The elephant wins. We're fickle. Too often we're ruled by emotions, desires, or circumstances, rather than know what we than what we know is good and right. More seriously, we let our circumstances and emotions affect our thinking about God, our relationship with God, about church and what it means to live as a Christian. Um, hopefully you can manage to think back just a short while ago. This afternoon it's about 3, 3.30. Uh, and either it comes to your mind or somebody else in your family reminds you or somebody you're with, it's time to get ready for church. What were you doing at that time? And how did it make you feel when it was time to get ready for church? So for me, um, this afternoon, at that time I was with Kenilworth Town under 18s, I'm the coach, our match was coming to an end roughly. Uh, and after the game, the coach, you know, the manager, and some of the other players, they stay in the club and they have a drink and they talk about the game and just hang out together. And I quite enjoy that side of the game too. Uh, but I have to get home, I have to get showered and changed and get here 
for church. And if I'm preaching or leading, uh, there's a bit more pressure to get here slightly earlier. So often uh, I arrive on a Sunday having not had the greatest preparation, a little bit flustered maybe and a bit rushed. But what about you? Has church interrupted something you were doing and enjoying? Or maybe you would just rather be somewhere else than here right now and you're a bit resentful? Or maybe life's hard and coming to church feels like a chore? Or maybe you've got a a bit of a broken relationship in your family or with somebody here at KCC and it feels a bit awkward being here. Or maybe you're going through a spiritually dry time and it feels as if God is distant. And what's the point of going to church if I'm just going through the motions? Hopefully, for many of you, actually, the thought of coming to church was a joy. Uh, You're excited, looking forward to gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ to worship God together, to hear and be changed by God's word, to be encouraged and built up to live as a Christian in this world, to grow in our love of God and one another. Well, I'm sure the reality is we all would have been in one of those places today, and even if you were in a good place, you would have experienced one of the other times in the past. Because we're fickle. We let our circumstances and our emotions influence our attitude to church because we let our circumstances and emotions influence our attitude towards God and our relationship with God. And I think in this passage today we're going to see we change but God does not. Our circumstances and emotions change but God doesn't change. God is not fickle. I think this is how I would summarise chapter 2. Even in what might feel like the darkest of times God is working for the good of his people because he loves them and is committed to them. We can be confident No matter what we're experiencing, God has not stopped being God. So, we're going to pick up our journey through the book of Exodus today. Uh, We're only at chapter 2. But if you've you've read it or listened to the reading, you might be thinking, is this got much purpose? It seems like a bit of a filler. But you know, when you have a, a book or a movie or a TV series, sometimes there's a bit you think... That's just a bit of a fillet. Maybe setting a bit of scene, but it's not adding much to the main story. Chapter 2 actually is an abridged biography of Moses from birth up until the call of God. So one chapter covers around about 80 years. And we look back at chapter 1. Uh, and in chapter 1, the story was picked up from the end of Genesis. And we see there the Israelites are in Egypt still, but now they've been forced into slavery and they are oppressed. They're persecuted. Things are so bad, their newborn boys are being killed. So in Genesis, they went to Egypt to survive, but at the beginning of Exodus, they're being in slavery and persecuted. They need to be rescued from Egypt. Now, if we jump forward to chapter 3, I don't want to spoil next week too much, but we see there God calls Moses. People need to be rescued, and here God calls the rescuer. He's got a rescue plan. And he's going to send Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. So how does chapter 2 fit into that? Well, hopefully we all believe uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God read, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So God wants us to read this and learn from it. Uh, it's not as if 
Uh, chapter 2 is here because God had some essay assignments and he was told to write 10,000 words about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt uh, and at the end the first try he only got 9,500 so he had to kind of pad it out a little bit and put it in another chapter to get the word counter chapter 2 is here for our good to teach, rebuke, correct and train in righteousness and I'm convinced as we go through you will see that this chapter proclaims loud and clear even in what might feel like the darkest of times, God is working for the good of his people because he loves them and is committed to them. And that might sound familiar. We read it elsewhere, something very similar in Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In all things, not just some things, even in the hard, dark times. I think Exodus chapter 2 is a real-life illustration of this truth that was written to the Christians in Rome. Another question for you. What's, what's been your worst experience ever? What things do you fear the most? Maybe it's spiders. Share some of mine while she recalls some of yours. So I think in terms of physical pain, the worst thing I've ever had was breaking my leg. And my main memory, it was painful. It took 18 months to cry. But actually the worst memory was holding my leg and seeing the foot dangled like a bit of rubber. Um, Emotional pain, I think my worst experience was when my nan died. Uh, somebody who was a really big part of my life that I loved deeply. Uh, as a parent, uh, the fear of losing a child. We lost Toby once in Ikea. And those of you who shot my kids, it's a, it's, a, it's a maze. So we could hear him, <laughs> but we couldn't find him. We'll get to him. Eventually we did, thankfully. Uh, but a sense of panic. Uh, and also financial challenges. I had that time... Uh, I had no job. Actually, Lucy, we had young children. Lucy was not working. No income. No immediate prospect of a new job. So it was financial worry. I'm sure each, if we went round, each of us could share times we've had difficulties and challenges. But I think I can confidently say, whatever any of us have experienced, the life of those Israelites in Egypt was far worse. They were slaves. Barely enough to survive. No rights and no status. Beaten and worked remorselessly. I wouldn't be surprised if many of them wondered, is this a life worth living? If that wasn't bad enough, their newborn born boys were deliberately killed. We saw the end of chapter 1, Egyptians were killing newborn Hebrew boys. No longer just the midwives told to leave them to die. Egyptians were commanded to take newborn boys and throw them into the Nile. Can you even begin to imagine what it would have been like for Israelite parents at that time? Can you imagine what a pregnant mum would have been feeling, wondering, is this baby going to be a boy? Am I going to have to watch as he's ripped from my arms and thrown into the Nile like rubbish? Feels me with grief, <laughs> even just saying it. Just saying it. The thought of my children going through that. Yeah. Can you imagine what that would be like? What a dark time. And I'm sure he's right to tell us if God had abandoned them. And that life couldn't get much worse. How could God let this happen? Does God even care? Where is God? What is God doing? And we know already that. God had made covenant promises to the Israelites. So we see one promise has been kept. They've increased in number. But none of the other promises have been kept. 
And maybe the Israelites are beginning to wonder and doubt, is God ever going to keep his promises? So in this very dark time, what was God doing? They didn't realise at the time, but God was working for their good. He had a plan. He's not surprised at what is happening. He's not ignoring his people. He has a plan, a rescue plan. And actually he's working in preparation of that plan. The people need to be rescued. And so God needs to send a rescuer, a saviour. But that rescuer will need to be preserved. They'll need to get safe until the right time. They'll need to be positioned. They'll need to be in just the right place with the right access to fulfil God's plan. And they need to be prepared. They need the right skills and the right character. So in chapter 2 we'll see in this summary of the first part of Moses' life that God is at work preserving him, positioning him and preparing him to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. So first, Moses is preserved. Actually, Moses is preserved twice in this chapter. So the first one, verses 1 to 9, he's born. He's a newborn Hebrew boy. In reality, uh, with the commands at the time, he should have been killed. Instead, he's kept safe. His parents hide him for three months. And we can read in Hebrews 11, that was an act of faith. They were convinced God had his plan for this baby boy. It says, the mother looked on the baby and... He was beautiful, and so she protects him for three months as we looked at Joy, and I'm sure Pippa and Adrian think Joy and their other children are beautiful and special, and God has a plan for them. So she puts him in a basket after those three months, he's hidden in reeds, and then he's found, recognised as a Hebrew boy. Again, at that point, should have been killed. But instead he's saved and protected by Pharaoh's daughter, who decides to adopt him. So now Moses has the protection of Pharaoh himself. Again, just imagine, the queen turns up and she says to you, I'm going to adopt you into my family. So already your mind might be racing ahead, well, what am I going to get all the servants to do for me? What are all the luxuries I'm going to enjoy? But the main point is, you will get to live in the palace and the, the other residences the queen has. Wherever you go, you will have the same protection as the Queen. So if you're at Buckingham Palace, those soldiers with the funny hats, they'll be guarding the Queen, and they will be guarding you. But then we read on, verses 11 to 15. Moses murders an Egyptian. And Pharaoh finds out, and he wants to kill Moses. So that protection of the Pharaoh is removed. Not just is it removed, actually Pharaoh is now an enemy of Moses, wants to catch him and kill him. But Moses is able to escape. He escapes to Midian and is preserved. I think, again, in in keeping with the theme of God preserving, I think there's a bit of irony. Pharaoh gave the command to kill sons, therefore spared daughters. But it's actually women and daughters throughout Moses' life who are the ones protecting him. God was using the evil intent of Pharaoh to fulfill his purposes, working through those women... God is at work, keeping his chosen rescuers safe, ready for when he is needed for God's plan. And then we had Moses' his positions. So, found in the reeds, but not just by any Egyptian, found and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. All the privileges that go with that, growing up in the palace, but I think in terms of God's plan, the main thing he benefited from was having access to the palace and to Pharaoh himself. An Israelite 
raised as an Egyptian with access to Pharaoh and his palace. We'll see later in the story, that's just the right position needed to carry out God's plan. And that immediately reminds me of another time in the Bible when one of God's people is in a palace, Esther. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God puts his people in the right positions to fulfil his plans. And we had a bit of a taste of that as well for ourselves yesterday, didn't we? With thinking about how Adrian and Pippa, their journey to come and join us here. KCC, God's positioning just right for this time. It's been repeated throughout history. Uh, and whatever position you're in, if you're one of God's people, it's not an accident. God has positioned you for his plan. So because of his unique position... Moses would be the ideal mediator between the Israelites and their God and Pharaoh. So God was at work ensuring Moses was in the right position to carry out God's rescue plan. And then finally, Moses is prepared. God's rescue plan is bold, and we will look at that in more detail as we go in the coming weeks. But the rescuer had to have the right skills and the right character. So Moses was raised with privilege with education and training, but he also would have had knowledge about the Egyptians. He would have have learned about their beliefs and their customs. Perfect preparation for somebody to be an ambassador to the Egyptians. Even though Moses was raised as an Egyptian, we see all throughout the chapter, he always identified as one of God's people. His faith was in the God of Abraham, not the gods of Pharaoh. Explicitly in verses 1, 6, 7 and 11. And it's interesting because when he went to Midian, the first thing the priest's daughters thought was he was an Egyptian. But Moses never thought of himself as an Egyptian. So, And even after many years in Midian, he did not lose his sense of identity. So in verse 22 he has a child, his first child, and he names him something along the lines of, I am a foreigner in a foreign land, I am an exile. He never lost his sense of identity. And that's part of his preparation, knowing deep down he's one of God's people. He got a bit of practice as well as a rescuer. Verse 11 to 12, he rescues an Israelite from an Egyptian. Verses 17 to 19, he rescues the daughters from some bullying shepherds. So some practice, being a rescuer. Uh, And we see as the chapter goes through, there are clues that Moses' character is being developed. When he uh, intervenes with the Egyptian and the Israelites, he's rightly angry, but his response is violent and he murders the Egyptian. And that attempt to save the Israelites is ultimately a failure. That's early on in his life. And when he then intervenes with two Hebrews fighting, their response suggests maybe he had a superior attitude and his intervention was unwelcome. And then Moses had a period of around 40 years of exile in Midian. And whilst he was there, he lives with a priest. And I think, again, that's not accidental. I think it's fair to assume that living with a priest probably means there's some religious teaching 
and some religious practices going on in the home. And also while in Midian, Moses gets married and starts a family. So his circumstances are changing over this period. And I think we're supposed to see that he becomes a more humble man. And also his character is maturing. God is at work preparing Moses. So we see, even in that dark time of the Israelites, God was at work. God had a chosen rescuer, Moses. And God was at work ensuring he was preserved, positioned and prepared. And then we get to the end of the chapter, verses 23 to 25. The Israelites are crying out in pain. They're calling out to God. And it would seem as if, when you first read it, is this what causes God to act? But God is not forgetful. Uh, One of my fondest memories of my nan, whenever I visited, she would welcome me with something like, hello, Nikki, Paul, David, Stephen, oh, Wayne. And you think, it's my nan. (laughs) And she really forgot my name since last time. I visited. Um, I have some sympathy. She had nine children, lots of grandchildren, and great grandchildren. So it's probably hard to remember all the names. But God is not like that. God did not need reminding that the Israelites were his people. We did not need to be told what their situation was. He had not forgotten his covenant promises to them. We've already seen God is at work. So clearly, he hadn't forgotten them. Is at work for their good, preserving, positioning, and preparing a rescuer. And I think what we see in these final verses is actually God is at work in his people through their suffering. They'd finally reached a place where they knew they needed rescuing. They had an understanding that only God could rescue them, and they were ready to be rescued by God. The time was ready for the rescue to begin. And even then, hidden within those verses, it's clear why God will rescue them. Not because they ask him to, just for that reason, but he's chosen them. He's made a covenant with them. He's concerned about them. He loves them. So again, even in what might feel like the darkest of times, God is working for the good of his people because he loves them and is committed to them. And I want to commend to you, that is the main message of chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. But it's not the only message. Because it also points forward to Jesus, the perfect rescuer. The rescuer greater than Moses. There are many parallels here. I think we begin our lives in slavery to sin and death. If we pay attention to that and take it seriously, we will call out to God. We will know we need to be rescued. Thankfully, God has provided that rescue and we can be saved. In further parallels, Jesus was preserved. Whilst he was on earth, just like Moses, his parents had to hide him from a king who was killing newborn boys. Jesus was positioned. God incarnate is not insignificant. Fully God, fully human. Having to come into this world to live the life we cannot live, but also being that perfect mediator, able to represent human beings to God the Father in heaven. And Jesus was prepared. Yes, he knew about the rescue plan from the beginning of time, but whilst he was a man, he was prepared to join his child. And we had the 40 days in the wilderness, 
The person I think is a parallel there with the 40 years for Moses in Midian. And we read Jesus' story. Uh, his baptism signified the end of his preparation and the start of his ministry. A ministry that would lead him to the cross. So God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt for their goods. And we can learn much from that about God and our relationship with God. But it also teaches us we need a greater saviour than Moses. We need a perfect rescuer because we need rescuing from sin and death for all eternity. And that saviour is Jesus. So friends, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you need to be rescued. You might not realise it, but you're living a life of slavery, a slave to sin and death. And if you're not rescued, that life will end in a slavery that lasts forever. Jesus can save you and set you free. Free to be reconciled with God, to live in peace with your Creator and worship Him. Free to live the life you were created for. Free to be one of God's family. Free to love your neighbours unconditionally. Free to tell others about Jesus, the perfect rescuer. So you've got two options if you're not yet a Christian. You can carry on as you are. Captive to sin and death, heading for hell and eternal slavery with no hope that you can save yourself. Or you can turn to Jesus. You can cry out to God and trust in his promises. Be set free from your slavery and become one of God's people. So if you're ready today to take that step, don't go away and miss the opportunity. Speak to one of us afterwards. We'd love to, we'd love to pray with you if that's the step you're ready to take. For those of us who are already Christians, we can rejoice in what God has done for us through Jesus. We can rejoice in being rescued and being set free. What great news. And part of that, as God's people, we're loved by God, like those Israelites were. And God has made covenant promises to us, like he had done to those Israelites. So what was true for them is true for us. We can be really confident that even in the darkest of times, God is working for the good of his people, because he loves them and is committed to them. That's true today as it was for those Israelites in Egypt. So why do I think we need to hear that message? Well, I think there's one thing I can absolutely promise you today. If you've never experienced a dark time in your life, you will at some point in the future. Even as those of us who've already had dark times will face more pain, loss, suffering, persecution. Those things are all part of this fallen world. We cannot avoid them until Jesus returns and renews all, th- renews all things. We will face dark times. So the question is not, how do I avoid dark times? I think that's impossible. The real question is, how am I going to respond when dark times come? And we thought earlier, didn't we, how actually we're quite fickle. We let our circumstances and emotions too often override knowing the truth and knowing what is right and good. And so when life is hard, and being a Christian is costly, we let ourselves become despondent and we feel sorry for ourselves. And as we live the Christian life, we repeatedly fail to resist temptation, we fall into sin and we feel like failures. Sometimes we believe the lies of the world and Satan and we doubt the goodness and faithfulness in God. And we so easily forget God has made a covenant commitment to us and he cannot break that covenant. It is sealed with the very blood of Jesus. 
And so we reach sometimes unbelief, stop believing that God loves us absolutely and is always working for our good. So what's the alternative? I would suggest we are not going to copy the Israelites who were slaves. They waited until things were so dark, dark as they probably could ever be, and then they cried out to God. Obviously I'm not saying when you're suffering or when you're experiencing pain, don't call out to God. That's a good thing. What I am saying is, don't ignore God in the good times and then only turn to him when times are hard. As if he's some kind of genie. And when you need to make a wish or you need to have your comfort restored, you can rub the lamp and out pops the genie and makes everything right again. God is our creator, our saviour, our loving father. He wants an intimate relationship with us at all times. Imagine it this way. Oh, let me go back one. Who's the person to you turn to when you're feeling low? I think hopefully you've all got at least one person. Times are hard, you're struggling with life. Who do you turn to for comfort or guidance? I guess for most of us it's maybe a spouse, family member, close friend. But why do you turn to that person in particular? Trust, closeness, love? I would suggest it's probably because of the depth of relationship you have with that person. Wouldn't it be strange if you only ever spoke to them when things were hard and you needed some comfort and support? And then when life is good, you just ignore them. I think if that's the kind of relationship you have, they probably would start to feel used and resentful. And probably if there wasn't any real depth to your relationship with them, you would not turn to them for help. That would seem odd. And yet that's how we often treat God. Instead, I will put it to you, the best way to prepare for dark times, because they will inevitably come, is to deepen our relationship with Jesus today, tomorrow, and every day. Build your house on the rock that is Jesus. Then you will be able to withstand the storms of life. Remind yourself often of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Spend time with Jesus in prayer, getting to know him and drawing closer to him. Remind yourself often of the promises of God for this life and the future. We have a certain hope of heaven. Our resurrected eternity will be glorious and without pain and suffering. We have such amazing promises to hold on to. So when dark times come, we can have a better response. Instead of being despondent, we can persevere in faith. Instead of feeling like failures, we can have a joyful confidence because we are not condemned. We're justified and declared righteous. And rather than doubt God, we can trust him, fearing nothing or no one. Instead of forgetting, we can remember God's promises. Rather than not believing God loves us, we can know deep in our hearts we're loved by God. In short, we can live in light of the truth that has been revealed to us about Jesus. We can live as if we really believe the gospel and believe God's word. We live as if we really do love and follow Jesus. We can live as if we believe this is true. Even in what might feel like the darkest of times, God is working for the good of his people because he loves them and is committed to them. I thought it would be helpful if I could finish by reading from Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.